You are listening to Lines on Music Podcast, Episode 6. This is Part 2 of Made in Ireland, featuring Trian and Ihiakon. Okay, uh, here we are in Dublin's Dockland, with the River Niffy lapping against the back walls of a new rehearsal space uh, in the hometown of you two. In the previous episode, which was part one of this two-part feature on the edited collection of essays made in Ireland, I spoke to two of the editorial team, Onia Mengawang and John O'Flynn. In that episode, we took a bird's-eye view of this collection of essays, talking through the different thematic sections and discussing the various essays. For this episode, the second and final part, I wanted to dig a little deeper into just one of those essays. And while there are some really great essays in the collection, Trian and Ihiakon's contribution really stood out to me as having a particular importance. And it is an extended conversation with Trina that follows in this episode. So firstly, by way of introduction, Antolov Trian and Ihiakon is an interdisciplinary scholar of music and Irish, a whistle player and singer. She is particularly interested in Irish language performing arts and oral traditions, Irish traditional music, women poet composers, and histories of thought as represented in Irish language song and poetry. She was appointed Professor of Modern Irish and Performing Arts at Maynooth University in 2021, prior to which she was Head of the Department of Music and Lecturer in Irish Traditional Music at University College Cork. Her current research focuses on singing and social theory, as well as women's oral traditions. She is author of Blaws Craev Nauder, Aron War of We, from 2012, and Singing Ideas, Performance, Politics, and Oral Poetry from 2018. Trina's essay in Made in Ireland, entitled The Politics of Sound, Modernity and Postcolonial Identity in Irish Language Popular Song, was particularly compelling because it was addressing popular music Trivian the Gaeilge through the medium of the Irish language. And as such, this is really an essential contribution to the collection, not least in terms of locating Irish culture and identity in the Anglo-American, English-language-dominated world of popular music. Our conversation touches on Irish post-colonial identity and the profound impact of radio on the resurgence of the Irish language. Trina also highlights the marginalised nature and dynamic of Irish-language speakers and creators, and I think eloquently illustrates what it truly means to sing in Irish. I started by asking Trina about the Irish language's niche space in popular music. So, like, it's it's an interesting question because, um, you know, I think that the majority of people in Ireland have at least some Irish because Ireland is ta- Irish is taught in all uh, primary and secondary schools and so forth. Um, but there are actually, uh, you know, there's a quite a small um, pool of native speakers and speakers who. Um, use Irish every day outside of an education context. So I think it's somewhere in the, you know, it's it's 70 something thousand speakers. So that's 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 quite a small um, uh, linguistic community in one way. Uh, but because most people have at least some Irish, the listenership is actually probably bigger than that, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, and then of course, uh, for bands such as Clonad and so forth, you're talking about an international listenership for Irish language songs that's massively expansive, but the listeners don't necessarily understand the words of the songs in Irish. So they're, they're interesting different layers to it. Um, but definitely what I would feel about um, Irish language in, in popular song, and I suppose what I was trying to get across in the chapter was, was that there actually is a huge diversity 
of identities and subjectivities to be found within Irish language popular song, um, different genres, different groups of people who are engaging imaginatively with the Irish language um, in different contexts um, and producing kind of quite distinct senses of self, I suppose, that are, are different from one another, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think that's a huge part of anybody who composes in Irish. Um, it's in some ways, it's a statement in itself um, because you're choosing not to compose in English in a world that is utterly dominated by the English language in really profound ways and also in uh, problematic ways um, from the point of view of the sustainability of minority languages and other ecosystems um, of language and culture. As you mentioned there, you've got some quite diverse case studies here, and we can get into those in a second. But um, you talked there about the idea of the self and kind of performing the self. I think in the essay, you refer to it as uh, performing the post-colonial self. Yeah. I don't know, maybe could you maybe just a little elaborate a little bit on the idea of um, I guess the post-colonial self in relation to music. I guess that's kind of what you've been touching on there a little bit. But. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's interesting, like in modern Ireland, um, people naturally associate the English language massively with Ireland because it's the first language of the majority of um, Irish people nowadays. Um, but a funny thing kind of happens. Sometimes people sort of imagine this Anglophone world going back in time, even though it's something that's incredibly recent. Um, so uh, English only really developed the dominance that it has today um, from after the Great Irish Famine, uh, when, I mean, the communities who were most affected um, by the devastation of the Great Irish Famine were Irish speakers, as, as is well known. Um, and so that caused almost an irreversible change. Uh, in the linguistic culture of Ireland. And of course, many other traditions and practices, unfortunately, would have perished along with those very vulnerable communities at the time. Um, and if you go back to, um, you know, the very, very long history of British imperialism and colonialism in, in Ireland, um, part of the colonial project was to anglicise Ireland from very, very early on. And a lot of the discourses that you find from historical periods are, you know, they're pretty disturbing, I suppose, uh, for modern for modern readers or modern ears, um, whatever way you'd like like to put it. Um, but it, it, you know, the the aim was an eradication of um, Gaelic language and customs and laws and so forth, and uh, for Ireland to be completely anglicised. I won't comment on how successful or otherwise uh, that was. Um, but uh, because I would take too long if I started going down that particular rabbit hole. Um, however, like the Irish language in contemporary Ireland, um, like any, any Irish person living in Ireland today, um, there is, I suppose, um, a history of oppression and loss that's, that's pretty profound. Um, so many people, I mean, English-speaking communities all around the country would have become English-speaking communities extremely quickly uh, by international standards of language shift in other regions. It was a drastic change. And unfortunately, it was accompanied by uh, a distinctly colonial mentality towards the Irish language. So the Irish language is representative of that, uh, which is lesser, uh, a less sophisticated language and culture 
a language that you should be embarrassed about, a language that is associated with um, poverty and ignorance. And there were, um, unfortunately, those associations um, have, you know, th those have endured um, with Irish people. So, like, you know, as you know, um, I'm also uh, an Irish traditional musician and singer and like Irish traditional music is is very fashionable today, but even if you go back not so long ago, like to the eighties, there were a lot of people who were very very hostile towards Irish traditional music as well, similar to how they'd be hostile towards the Irish language. And part of it was, you know, there was this this hostility towards it because of something dangerous that it represented, and that dangerous thing was to be the other of British imperialism. Essentially, you know, that we're so different. Uh, we have to hide our difference within the Anglophone world. We have to make sure that we're very, very similar to the rest of the English speaking world. And the Irish language or other aspects of, you know, traditional cosmology or uh, traditional uh, arts practices and so forth kind of threaten that massive performance of respectability that is associated with the English language. Um, and so when I talk about the post-colonial self, again, I'm I'm skimming the surface of it here, um, but the post-colonial self in modern Ireland, I, I would argue, is, is an inherently liminal self. Um, the poet Nolani Honel uh, composed a series of poems about um, Mur people who came onto land. And it's a very compelling series of poems in which uh, we see how this person is kind of uh, stolen from the sea or they're made come up onto dry land and they will never be a normal human being. They're very different to all other humans who've already been living on land, and yet they can never return to the sea that they came from. And I think it's one of the most powerful um, representations and explorations of post-colonial subjectivity in modern Ireland. And um, that sense that, you know, we have this very troubled past, and we also have a very rich heritage uh, we have this other linguistic past um, and where we find ourselves in 20th or 21st century Ireland, we can never fully return to that. You know, that's the tragedy of the of, of post-colonial reality is there is no going back. Um, this, the, the, the sort of destruction that we find, the cultural destruction that we find in colonialism um, isn't easily mended or poss possibly it's not even possible to mend it at all. And so I would argue that the post-colonial self uh, in modern Ireland tends to be, you know, um, an in-between self. Um, so Irish people, even though, um, you know, everybody in Ireland uh, speaks English now, I, there, there probably are not any monoglot Irish speakers left at this stage, even though there would have been some in the 20th century. Uh, even though we speak English, um, we'll never be quite like the rest of the Anglophone world. Um, but we've also been plucked out of um, an Irish-speaking past in a sudden sort of way. So there is there is a sense of fragmentation there. I suppose is what I'm saying. Um, there is a, there is um, there is a there is a past we might never be able to go back to. But what we find instead is that the modern Irish self seeks a way back. Um, often the modern self in Ireland wants to reconnect with that path in, in maybe in other ways. It doesn't mean that they will get back to how things were um, before major um, uh, language shift in Ireland 
or um, before uh, the, the, the terrible um, tragedy of the Great Irish Famine, where, you know, whole communities of people uh, perished. They're not going to go get back to kind of a pre-modern time. But what you find in um, popular music uh, and in, in lots of other sorts of, of music in the Irish language as well, is that people are still keeping, they're, they're trying to get away back. They're trying to, they're trying to get away back in. They're trying to reconnect in some way. Um, and of course, one should acknowledge as well that for the Irish speaking communities, native speakers of Irish in Ireland, that that break never happened. Um, they're, they're still obviously post-colonial subjects because they're living in, you know, um, an Anglophone world. Their communities have lots of histories of being, you know, disenfranchised, dispossessed and so forth. But it is a different experience, perhaps, to the, the English speaking post-colonial subject. Yeah, I mean, that paints an amazing picture of, you know, the complexity of our language and our culture, you know, the Irish state being a relatively young state in itself, but that long, long history kind of linked yeah. to um, colonialism and imperialism, kind of as you mentioned. Um, I guess in a way that kind of, that, that does provide good context for what we're going to kind of move on to. So um, one thing that's interesting in the chapter, you do talk about the role of radio actually as part of this way back in, as you put it a moment ago, you know, trying, you know, trying to find the way back to the language and the way back. Yeah. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of radio in terms of the Irish language, the resurgence of it. So maybe more so in the kind of 21st century almost. Yeah. Um, and yeah, some of the stations that have been involved in and the role and the impact that they've had maybe. Yeah. So like what's really profound about Irish language culture is um, it's, it's, it's defined by a sense of marginality because it's a minority uh, language. Um, it also, like, you know, anybody who who um, you knows Gaeltacht culture well in Ireland, you know, they're incredibly compelling and beautiful traditions there that are very different to what might be found uh, in mainstream Irish culture, for example. And the radio is has had a profound influence on Irish language culture more generally in Ireland. And of course, starting with um, Say Radio Chonamara, uh, which translates as Connemara Free Radio, which was a pirate station uh, founded in, I think it was 1969. So again, even the date um, tells us a lot about the milieu. Um, so as part of that incredible liminal time um, of, um, you know, rediscovery, um, reordering of the world, really, in 1969, we find that among uh, minority language activists that we see a similar movement coming to the fore. But it is interesting to note that Irish language broadcasting did begin as a part as pirate radio. That's pretty interesting, which would show how the Irish state is, uh, an, you know, such an anglophone uh, institution in many ways. Um, you know, that mainstream Ireland is really more about, you know, English speaking is, is uh, at the core of mainstream Ireland and government in profound ways. And then I think Radio Nogueltachta then, after the Gaeltachta, um, which is the Gaeltacht civil rights movement, um, then Radio Nogueltachta was then 
formally made uh, a national, a part of the National Broadcasting Service then in, in 1972. But even from its beginnings, um, Radinagaltachta would have encapsulated, you know, the, the, the whole vibe of, you know, the civil rights movement being an alternative uh, community representing another Ireland, essentially. So that would have been a huge part of what it uh, represented. Um, and you know, still to this day, Radio Nagaltachta would be the foremost um, radio station for traditional arts and traditional music. And I suppose cultural practices that would be maybe off the beaten track in comparison to mainstream Ireland significantly. And so we see then the beginnings of um, popular music in Irish then being aired in Radio Nagaltachta throughout those early years and particularly very influential uh country uh, singers and composers in the Irish language um, being aired there. But then there is another very interesting radio station as well, um, uh, Radio Nalifa. And, um, you know, there we find again that the sort of broadcasting that happens there is very, very alternative. Uh, it's very much posited uh, in contradistinction to mainstream Anglophone Ireland. So you'd get a lot of world music, you'd get a lot of kind of underground subcultural musics being uh, broadcast on those stations. And even on Radio Nagaltachta uh, with Kiona Kivoin's broadcasting on Treyav Tuhil and shows like that um, throughout, you know, the 80s and 90s and into, you know, as you say, the 21st century, we really find that young Irish speakers start identifying very, very strongly with um, alternative or subcultures that are quite different to mainstream Ireland. Um, because I suppose, you know, any native Irish speaker or any, you know, speaker of Irish from whatever background could just as easily just always speak English all the time because that's the main uh, language in Ireland. So there is kind of, there is a specific, how do you say, there's a, there's a decision uh, involved there. And I think that embracing um, one's inherent sense of marginality seems to be part of that. Um, because it's like, listen, I am different to the rest of English speaking Ireland. I'm going to embrace it. Uh, seems to be part of it. And I see that um, that strongly alternative uh, identity that you get from, um, you know, broadcasters uh, on Radio Nogueltachta or on other stations um, that, you know, that that's really key to having a healthy sense of identity for Irish speakers as well. But they're they're finding their niche as well. They're finding their people. And there seems to be a lot of intersectionality as well. You know, so for for Irish speakers, you know, that there would be lots of, um, you know, maybe non-Irish speakers who would just be very positive um, towards diversity, really. You know, they'd be they'd embrace the difference. Oh, I have a friend here and he or she or they um, are from, you know, the Gaeltacht and that's cool. And um, they're really into black metal and so am I, you know, or whatever it might be. Or, of course, the dance scene, um, you know, Kiona Kiavoin would have been kind of, um, uh, you know, I suppose both of us are old enough to remember um, the 90s. And, um, you know, you know, there would have been a lot of like English speaking um, teenagers, even from around our own area. Um, who would have been, you know, listening to Radina Gaeltachta because of the dance music that was being, you know, broadcast broadcast on it as well. So there's a very interesting dynamic there about how um, Irish speakers and 
creative practitioners in Irish, be they popular artists or traditional artists, really identify with a sense of being on the margins of society. And often you find that, you know, there'd be a strong sense of like um, Irish speaker, speakers would often identify very strongly with other post-colonial communities around the world, other speakers of minority language. And then that kind of spreads out into a kind of a broader sense of identification with um, people who tend to be off the beaten track. Uh, so it's just kind of an interesting dynamic that I think has developed over the years. Yeah, the role of the media in that has been, you know, very interesting. Like you said, Radio Nagwiltikta, also TG Carr as well at the moment, which produces really great content, you know, on the one hand, kind of promoting and maintaining uh, traditional music, but then lots of other kind of off the beaten track kind of content as well, which is really, really great. And as you talk about in the chapter, you talk about um, these alternatives and all these different performances of the multiplicity of identities of modern Ireland. And that, I guess, leads us on to the different case studies that you have. Uh, and the three case studies are really, really interesting because they are so very, very different from one another. Maybe we can kind of move through them one by one, kind of chronologically, as, as you have in the, in the chapter. So the first case study is Sandy Jones' Eurovision uh, entry, which is, is a 1972, uh, Kjol and Grohl. Um, which, which, which is really interesting to me reading it um, and watching the video which you describe in the chapter. Um, you know, you describe it as being very of the now in, in, the, in the 1970s. So it's, it's very modern representation of, uh, of Sandy Jones in kind of contemporary fashion, um, walk, you know, very cosmopolitan, you know, walking around the city, this very urban kind of, um, yeah, representation. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about that example and, you know, I guess the, the language in, in, the, in the musical setting as well. What's very interesting is just how the larger, um, the, how the, the larger sense of, of performativity essentially starts spilling into the meaning of the Irish language itself. So there, you know, for example, Sandy Jones, I mean, that was just an incredibly contemporary moment because there was nothing traditional about um, that song. So like, say if you compare Kjol and Hra to Clonad's theme from Harry's Game, they're very, very different because Clonad, uh, even though it's a new composition, it's still rooted uh, in, you know, aesthetics of traditional music and native Irish speakers from Donegal, from Donegal and so forth. So it kind of resonates with, with an older aesthetic, but Kjol and Hra was completely modern for the time. Uh, it was completely separate from, um, you know, traditional music aesthetics at that time. It was really, really, really contemporary. And then what's interesting about it is, um, you know, there was a huge sense of kind of giddy delight really spread throughout the country when Kjol and Hra won the National Song Contest, because as I mentioned previously, there is this tension in Irish society between you know, that people acknowledge the heritage value of the Irish language. Um, but at the same time, people can often feel afraid to embrace it or they're reticent to embrace it because it's stigmatized as, you know, being backward. I remember one of the things um, my own father mentioned to me is that a discourse that used to be around where he grew up was people were afraid that people would learn too much Irish and that that would be harmful to them as people, you know, if they had too much Irish, if their Irish was too good. So there were these kind of, um, you know, this, this, this kind of almost conflicted relationship to the language whereby it was valued and, um, you know, very strong, um, you know, constitutional status and so forth. But among everyday people that this would have, um, um, you know, that there would have been this sense of conflict. Um, and um, so, 
you know, so then with Kjol and Hra, what was kind of compelling about that was everybody embraced this. Um, but of course, it was very modern in its aesthetics and there was a concert orchestra and it was it was very much within the aesthetics of, you know, mainstream, uh, almost state-sponsored popular music. You know, it was very, there was nothing threatening uh, about it at all. And the, the singer, of course, was incredible, uh, Sandy Jones. And she was a really compelling performer. She had this amazing voice. Um, but also her style, you know, so the fashion she wore, the platform boots, the fur trimmed coats, the big hair, she really iconic to look at. And so there was this video for Kjolan Hra. And of course, Kjolan Hra was, at, you know, I think topped the charts in Ireland uh, during that summer. And as you mentioned there, she's there walking across the, the shaky bridge in Cork and there's this multicolored umbrella twirling. And then I think there's another image of her and she's got this... Um, you know, this this kind of one piece hot pants outfit and as uh, she's sitting in this very kind of sophisticated lounge. And then, of course, you have the concert, the sound of the concert orchestra in, in the background, which adds to this sense of sophistication. So it was a really sophisticated um, performance. And it because um, it was so modern, because it was associated with a popular music form, um, in particular, it allowed people to embrace it. And there was a massive sense of pride. Um, you know, the place went bananas when this song won and everybody knew it. Like people of a certain generation, if you ask them to hum, Kjol and Hra, they'll still know it. They'll still know part of the words. And it's kind of a forgotten part in many ways of uh, Irish language pop history, but it was an amazing moment. Um, and so we see essentially the perform how the performativity of say the genre itself, how it's performed, all the other aspects of performance actually feed into what the language can mean for people as well. Um, and so to um, English speaking Ireland and Irish speaking Ireland, of course, the Irish language took on a different meaning. Uh, people were allowed to be proud of it. People were allowed to own it, that no, we're not actually the exact same as the other Anglophone countries. There's something different about us. And um, but then what was even more interesting about it was, um, you know, there was huge excitement in Ireland. Dana had won two years before or something like that. Uh, and so there was huge expectation. Um, but what emerged later was actually the lead singer was receiving threatening letters by virtue of the song being in Irish. So this song, like the lyrics of it are so positive. It's like really buoyant. It's really upbeat. It's one of the most positive, utterly non-threatening songs that was ever composed in the world. <laughs> like the, the words to it are, uh, and it's like, listen, listen, I hear it again. It's the music of love, you know, it's really idealistic, really idealistic. Um, and then it's, you know, um, the birds sing it for me. I hear it on the wind. It's the it's the music of love. It was just purely an upbeat, um, very, you know, poppy love song, really upbeat, nothing problematic about it. <laughs> Is to maroon, shin kyolan gra. 
you're highlighting there like how innocuous the lyrics are you know it's it's just so apolitical um and then like you said then she was receiving death threats so and, and then you kind of you, you kind of you refer to Marshall McLuhan you know it really is the medium is the message you know it's like it's just a simple fact that she was singing in Irish and perhaps the setting in this in this modern context in this you know popular very modern popular context that 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 was threatening in itself. That's right. So um, that's why I refer to McLuhan in the article is that I argue that singing in Irish was it was a message in itself, you know, so beyond content, you know, the content of the the song uh, was just, you know, there was nothing that could in any way be considered seditious or threatening or anything like that in the song. It was just really positive. Um, But we see how, you know, to to the ears of different communities that that would have meant something different. Uh, and so, you know, we don't know who sent the threatening letters to uh, Sandy Jones in the run up to the Eurovision in 1972. We don't know uh, who was behind the, the minor explosion that actually uh, happened in the auditorium on the night of the Eurovision Song Con- Contest itself. So in the middle of the song, there was, an, there was a minor explosion and people had to be kind of evacuated and moved out of seats and everything while the song was being sung. So the, you know, I think people assume that these things are connected and I would imagine that they are, Um, but it was considered that even such, um, you know, a harmless love song, you know, something that couldn't possibly be threatening or political in any way by virtue of it being Irish for some people that was automatically construed as seditious, uh, threatening, um, and, you know, so it's, it really does show the fluidity of meaning of the sounds of the Irish itself. And that's something I'm interested in, is what the linguistic sounds of Irish can mean within the larger performative context of any given popular music performance. And in this case, we see that for the majority of the Irish population, um, you know, they felt it was, they were so proud of it. Possibly that it was so apolitical was something that people were were particularly proud of as well, that it was so modern. It was just something that they felt they could embrace. But then, um, you know, we, I suppose we can assume that perhaps it might have been, you know, threatening letters from maybe um, loyalists possibly, we just don't know. But I suppose because of the backdrop of the troubles, uh, we we might assume that, um, and the sounds of the Irish language meant something radically different to those ears. And that's interesting, you know, in relation to the the next case study that you have. So the next case study is 
you know, planets theme from Harry's game, um, which is really interesting. So if you think of the people involved in it as well. So as you highlight in the chapter, Sandy Jones was not from an Irish speaking background. You know, she had to be um, kind of tutored in the pronunciation of the of the piece as well. Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's really interesting in itself. And then, of course, we have Clannad, who, you know, grew up within the tradition. So so maybe we'll move on to the, the next case study um, and maybe maybe you can kind of contrast it with the first one and give us some kind of context around around Clannad and and, and and the music that they were creating, this kind of Celtic New Age, you know, Irish music. These are, it's very interesting to compare these two examples because, you know, they're so different, even though both of them are kind of within popular music in the Irish language. But uh, say Sandy Jones, as you mentioned, uh, she wasn't a native speaker of Irish. Um, she was very diligent about learning the pronunciation of words, but, you know, she needed additional instruction and that. And so she was somebody from, you know, she was, uh, she grew up in Dublin. She was from an English speaking background. And so this was something um, that she really embraced, um, but she definitely was from, she had a very different background from Clonard, all of whom are native speakers of Irish from Donegal and who would have been steeped in the local Shano singing tradition from, you know, the word go essentially. So the other thing that's interesting about Clonard is Clonard is equally valued among um, popular music fans and traditional music fans. So Clannad are interesting because they are both part of the history of Irish traditional music and part of the history of popular music in Ireland as well, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, and so then this is the early 80s, so 1982. So, um, you know, say if we think back to uh, 1972 when Ciolan Hraw was so popular in Ireland. Um, and, you know, we have the backdrop of the troubles in the North. Of course, now we have had the backdrop of the troubles for even longer by the time um, Clonard's theme from Harry's game becomes an international uh, sensation. And so what's striking about this is the words are, are, are very sparse. There are very few words in the song, but the sounds of the words are utterly beautiful. Um, they're really beautiful because of the gorgeous dialect um, of of Clannad themselves. Um, it's uh, native Irish as well. So we're hearing the sounds of Irish from 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 a native speaker, and they're they're particularly beautiful. And that's that's kind of part of the sound experience, I suppose, of team from Harry's game. Um, but this does make a sort of political statement, even though I suppose it's more an apolitical statement because. Um, Clannad themselves have spoken about how Team from Harry's Game was specifically about not taking sides. It was something that was meant to be non-partisan. Uh, it was about um, a universal sense of humanity, I suppose, more uh, than anything else. So there is oblique reference to the troubles in this, the songs in Irish, but in almost a mystical way. Um, so the words are... Um, so in, in, in Ulster Irish now, I won't pronounce it correctly the way they do, but it's Imohai um, Sir Sheer on Yalachas and Hirian. So in Munster Irish, that would be Imoig Sir Sheer on Yalachas and Hirian. So um, the, the moon and the sun will go east and west. And then we have these traditional vocables from Irish, Fal the Dal, Fal the Day. And, you know, any traditional singer will recognize those vocables as, you know, associated with really fun and upbeat songs in the Shannon singing tradition. So, for example, a Cork song 
Um, Uncallin Eirach would have those in it, for example. Fal dal da oh, fal dal da This kind of upbeat, you know, happy songs. Whereas now they're kind of recreated. Um, those are those traditional vocables from both the English and Irish song traditions, but they're created as kind of somber and meaningful and they're slower. And so it's kind of recreating this, this incredible sense of uh, giving yourself over to the moment of song, giving yourself over to this incredible sound experience. From a musical um, perspective, that's really, really interesting. So you talk about the lilting, you know, traditionally being kind of a very lighthearted kind of um, musical gesture. Uh, yet in this context, it's got that more, uh, as you put it, somber po- poignancy in, in the in the chapter. Um, so maybe from someone who's, you know, a, you know, a musician within the tradition, maybe you could speak a bit more about what what that musical gesture was. Is, is that a very is that a very intentional thing to 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 take out the lilting from its normal setting and kind of subvert it this way, or you know, could we say that that would be something that you could do, or was it was that quite a was that quite a move musically to do that? I, I would say that it was quite a move musically to do that. Although I would also say that they did it in a really organic way, you know. So it's something that even though it was really new, really appealed to traditional aesthetics as well. Um, but to my knowledge, they were the first to to do that to place those lilting vocables in that kind of new, more somber space. Um, so it was really, um, it was really skillfully done. It was really beautifully executed, but it was, it was certainly a move. Um, almost it's all, the use of those vocables, I think, uh, was a defining moment in the history of um, popular music in Ireland. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, and it, it's, it's not an Irish language comparison, but, you know, something that it brings to my mind is, um, you know, the music of uh, Lisa Gerard from Dead Can Dance. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but, you know, she's she's singing in a kind of more abstracted way. And I think there are interesting parallels there. Uh, and both of those, you know, like Clannad and Enya um, and people like Lisa Gerard, who's not from an Irish setting, they're Australian, I believe. Um, you know, there there's something that, that draws international listeners to that. It's like a sonic, a sonic aesthetic or something. So you don't need the language in a way. Exactly. Like this is the fascinating thing about Clannad is, you know, like say if we compare again back with Kjol and Hra, uh, I know Liam Mukishteen, who composed the lyrics, um, you know, he was saying like one of the, the, the best things about Kjol and Hra, obviously it was an enormous achievement for an Irish language song 
within post-colonial Ireland to actually win the national song contest was a massive moment. You know, it was huge. Um, but he said the greatest thing was, he said, was that this was sung on a stage and millions of people all over the world now knew that there was another language other than English spoken in Ireland. You know, so even though that song was really apolitical, the language also really meant something for, for the composer and for the Irish language community in Ireland. It's like, yes, we're here and yes, we have this other tradition. Um, and then with Clonad, then um, you have, you know, you know, native Irish speakers composing this new song with this really compelling sound. The sounds of the Irish are part of that. The sounds of the vocables are part of that. And the majority of people who have listened and adored that song don't understand Irish. And that's fascinating because it's the sounds themselves mean something. There's an aesthetic to the sound uh, that's integral to the overall musical experience. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. There's like that, you know, that, that, that rooting in the tradition, but this element of innovation. And as you said it at the beginning, you know, um, it appeals to Irish listeners, uh, Irish music listeners, and, you know, just popular music listeners, um, which is super interesting. And there's one other kind of more lighthearted association I have with this. Um, I don't yeah. know if you remember the, the movie Intermission, the movie Intermission from the early 2000s, I think. Um, it's got Colin uh, Farrell and uh, Colin Meany. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Colin Meany's character is, is this kind of... Um, He's a kind of a macho uh, Garda policeman, you know, in this kind of old fashioned way. And, you yeah. know, his, his music of choices, I think he refers to it as, you know, the music of Celtic mysticism, you know, Enya, Fáni Lasta, and, you know, Colin, Colin Farrell steals his car and he's playing his music, playing me sounds, as he puts it, you know. And it's, it's good, that's an interesting kind of association with this music uh, being, you know, joined up with this kind of tough Irishness or this kind of macho Irishness as well, which is kind of a bit off point, but it just, it just reminds me of that as well. <laughs> I think I I I, um, I have a vague memory of that film, but I don't know it well enough now to comment at length. But I think that possibly what they were getting at there was the the contrast between the macho Irishness and the incredibly dulcet sounds of Clonard, um, and connecting into a, a kind of a sense of timeless mysticism as well. Because um, I like even you know Clonard's performance on Top of the Pops of Team from Harry's Game, it's all darkness and mist. You know, it's it's actually literally misty. Um, and we can scarcely see most of the performers. And so um, I think the visual aspects of Clonard at that time were also really key to what that music meant to people. And it was about something timeless, um, but there was something really world embracing about Clonard as well. You know, a lot of, um, subcultural movements or underground movements often posit themselves against the world. They'd be what Weber might call kind of world rejecting. Um, but Clonard weren't world rejecting, they were world embracing. And I think even um, the incredible nuance of theme from Harry's game um, within the context of um, not just the tragedy, but the injustice of the troubles. Um, and the incredible political legacy, you know, behind that as well, that the incredible skill with which they created um, almost a sense of Irishness that reconnected with itself in a seamless way, that still embraced um, its, its heritage. And it, but it, it ultimately created a new uh, sense of Irishness. I mean, it, 
I think that, you know, in many years from now, I still think that that song will be looked upon as this incredible turning point um, in the history of popular music in, in the Western world more generally, obviously in the Irish context, but creating this sense of long ago that impacts on the present. Now, of course, there are other ways in which uh, Celtic mysticism, unfortunately, can be used in, in, in very negative ways politically as well. I won't get into those now because they have nothing to do uh, with theme from Harry's Game or any of, of Clonard's um, work. But the, the idea of the imagined Celtic past, um, the, the myth in many ways of, of, of this um, almost homogenous Celtic past is something um, that, that has been generated in, in an inherently you know, positive and world embracing way by Clonard, um, but is something that unfortunately um, can also be used to, um, to darker ends by, by other political movements and is something that always has to be watched in that sense, yeah. So maybe maybe we'll move on to the third case study then, which is which is interesting um, because it links back to what you were talking about—the multiplicity of identities, you know—and these alternative identities that are you know that that we can find in in you know Irishness and Irish popular music. And so your final case study is um, the Irish black metal band Primordial. And so we're kind of really into the realm of scenes and subcultures here almost, um, which is great, which is kind of interesting. So it's it's so you know it's it's really a. I mean, it is very much a popular music, you know, it's got the modes of production, you know, record production, dissemination. Um, and while, while often black metal musicians or participants in the scene might not view it as popular music, it very much is a popular music, you know, um, and, and it, does, it does attract large audiences internationally. Yeah, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about this example and, and maybe why you chose this. I guess it's because it's so different to the other two. Um, but yeah, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about this. Yeah, so... Um like I, Primordial were a band that I I, um, I came to know about through my brother as a teenager. Um, you know, both of us are traditional musicians and there is an air um, that, you know, my father would have played and that I play called Auron Laur. It's, it's a beautiful song composed by Tomás Rose Sullivan. And so, so forth. And um Anyway, so we came across this band. I, I couldn't even remember their name at the time. It was played on, on vinyl or something. And there was somebody playing this under a different name. Um, and they, they were playing Auron the Lauer and they were a metal band. And so this was something that we were amazed by and found really interest, interesting. And of course it was primordial. And actually, you know, say I would specialize in airplane and as airplane go, goes, even within a traditional context, like they did a great job of it. It was really, really, really good. But it obviously was completely repositioning Auron Laur, um, this traditional air within a completely new context. So that was that was when I first kind of came across them. And I suppose over the years, I had noticed that there seems to be um, a significant crossover between um, uh, traditional music and metalers in Ireland. I'm not sure is that fair to say, but this is my impression anyway. Yeah, I would say that is fair to say. You know, there's there are you know I know in the Irish metal scene there are bands who don't really position themselves in relation to like the language or the kind of Celtic mm. um, aesthetic, but many of them do. You know, you have bands like Waylander from the north who who would have used traditional uh, pieces of music like Onrina uh, Shi, the King of oh, the yeah. Fairies and things like this. So there, like, like you said, there is a big connection between, you know, uh, the Irish extreme metal scene and 
traditional music for sure. There is. And I think that another big connection is that sense of being on the margins of society. Um, and of course, when you, you know, um, you know, once you enter the metal scene, it is a transformation of sorts. You know, uh, it is a moment of recreating the self and becoming something new in some ways. Um, and in many ways, it's it's a, it's a philosophy. It's a it's a way of life. It's um, it, and possibly a way of life that pushes back against the mainstream and kind of in 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 a in a really explicit way. Uh, and again, I'm very interested in the visual aesthetics. You know, the hair. Um, body paint, um, you know, the fashion that might go with it as well. Um, and so the reason I picked this was, I think it's representative of kind of a, a larger impulse uh, within Irish society, whereby those who identify as being part of an alternative scene um, start to identify with the Irish language as something that is really, really different to mainstream English speaking Ireland. Um, but it also crosses over with something that's a little bit connected to Clonad as well, as in the creation of a kind of a timeless mysticism or, um, you know, the performance of an imagined past uh, and so forth. And so Primordial are interesting because um, I think they were founded in the 80s, so they're around a while, um, but it was in the 90s anyway that they um, they released Full Orsa. And uh, this would have been before the foundation of TG Cahit, the Irish language uh, television station in Ireland, for example. So we can't underestimate what a bold move this was on the part of Primordial. I just want to say this. Many other um, metal bands have you know, used Irish language since. Um, but at the time that they released this, this was a brazen move. Um, this, was an, 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 you know, this was an incredible thing to do within um, a mainly Anglophone world. Um, so, you know, one could say, okay, were they pinning their colours to the mast? But actually they were doing something entirely different um, because they were engaging in the Irish language, um, the imagery of the Irish language, the sounds of the Irish language in an entirely new way and in their own way. Um, and they fused it with this incredibly strong sense of um, an alternative way of being. And on, an alternative way of even seeing the world, I think, um, was what was happening here. Um, and so um, in the in the chapter, I, I say that this this was a stand in the face of the world. Again, you'll notice the reference to Weber there. Um, but that's what I think Primordial were doing. You know, the Irish language was a pushback against uh, mainstream society. But it was very interesting the sort of language that they were engaging in. So they were engaging with uh, symbolism of a much earlier period in Irish language history. So, for example, um, the performer uh, Nemhanga or um, you know, Nivhanga, or however you might like to, to pronounce it, because it's actually an amalgamation of Old Irish and Modern Irish. Uh, of course, means uh, poison tongue. It's um, synonymous with troublemaking. Uh, and so the, everything about this band is about shaking things up. It's about unsettling society. And what's interesting here is, you know, how you get, um, you know, a sense of gothic apocalyptic renewal in their songs, how you get a sense of kind of this dark sense of timelessness. It's this more foreboding um, uh, aesthetic to, to their songs. And then they have very interesting words, for example, 
on uh, on on grey feel erash. Um, so that which rises up from the soil will return. So you get these mysterious lyrics. You know, so what what do they mean? They're more you know creating an, uh, an an imaginary space. They're creating this space of again return. Um, at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the post-colonial self, and I was talking about you know looking for this this way back. But what we find is that these ways of making that return are actually quite diverse. Um, and then we'd have other things like I'm after walking all of the woods. And of course, the woods being the quintessential site of liminality and magic uh, in the Irish tradition. Then we have other words such as people of the gods, weaving magic, my blood eternal. I mean, the use of the lyrics was, was uh, incredible but all points towards this pre-Christian sense of um, druidic magic, essentially. So it's going very, very far back, but it's incredibly uh, contemporary. And so it's kind of, it's almost like this gothic sense of anarchy. And it is, there is something sinister about it, but there's something that's inherently renewing about it. And that's what fascinates me about that particular genre is that, um, the darkness, um, I suppose, creates this this um, this site of liminality, this place where everything trembles in the balance, which we would know then from the work of Van Gennep and Turner that can inherently lead to regeneration or the creation of something new. <laughs> I don't claim to be an expert on metal. And the other thing I wanted to say is that 
I was conscious that the title of the, the chapter had the term popular music in it. And I was like, oh, dear, um, metal fans are going to hate the term <laughs> popular music in relation to metal. As you rightly pointed out, I was using it in a technical way. Um, but I, I do want to acknowledge that, that, you know, identity wise, um, I think that uh, practitioners of, of metal and uh, listeners of metal would absolutely position themselves in a different way culturally. I think there's also the distinction between pop music and popular music, I think. And of course, you know, we, we can associate pop music with, um, you know, probably very early teenage music, uh, you know, boy bands and girl bands and things like that. But of yeah. course, music that's popular, you know, you know, touches on all swathes of, you know, from electronic and dance music to, you know, extreme metal. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, I mean, maybe they don't identify it as being popular, but it, it certainly is, you know. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting example. And I, I think the, the black metal scene in itself, which emerged, you know, kind of in the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, was operating in um, opposition to the American death metal scene. So, again, you've got this very, um, you know, Anglo-American, uh, you know, dominant style of, you know, popular heavy metal at the time, which was death metal. Yeah. Um, and the emergence of the Norwegian black metal scene in the 90s uh, was very much in opposition to that. And yeah. they, you know, many of those musicians and artists performed in you know, the English language, but a number of them as well performed in Norwegian and also associated with, you know, as you put it there, well, this kind of imagined kind of mythic past um, you know, in the Norwegian context, of course, they're, you know, linking it back to, you know, pre-Christian, yeah. uh, you know, Viking uh, deities and culture. Um, and I guess that's the kind of the framework that Primordial were probably working in here as well. So it's part of a wider, maybe European popular music, you know, move or trend or I guess impulse to, you know, link back to your kind of, you know, your ide idealized kind of pagan past and also the yeah. the visual representation, like the artwork and the album, but also the linguistic representation, the, the imagery and the words, you know, to kind of connect with that. So it is, it is a very interesting example and an interesting setting in this Irish context. And, you know, yeah. the, one of the things that I really liked about this paper is how, you know, we've you've situated this, you know, very, you know, extreme musical example, I guess we could call it, you know, in contrast with the, you know, the other two examples, you know, the, the Sandy Jones, which is, you know, as, you know, maybe that more idea of pop music, we could say. As a kind of final point, you could kind of talk about how, how these case studies merge or, or, and, or maybe diverge, you know, what were the most kind of yeah. striking links or divergences between them? I think, you know, in the end of your conclusion, you talk about and you draw on uh, Foucault's idea of like technologies of the self yeah. um, and the idea of the technique of the self. So maybe maybe as kind of a last point, you could maybe like summarize the kind of connections between these and talk about the idea of the technique of self. Yeah. So I think to, like for me, the striking thing about these examples and why I chose them was, first of all, um, they show a sense of kind of the, the real multiplicity of identities that you have from engagements with the Irish language. So rather than viewing Irish language popular music as a homogenous entity, and obviously there, there are way more genres than uh, what I covered in, 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 in the chapter, of course, and um, that we see that there is a huge diversity of how people engage with it and what it means. And um, I suppose that led me to think that the, the song itself or the performance itself is actually alive. It's a site of 
the formation of identity, essentially. It's not a representation of something necessarily, even though, of course, it represents many things in societies, but it's not just a representation of kind of larger societal phenomena or trends or experiences. The song itself is a moment of becoming. Um, and I suppose that's something that I've spoken about in other parts of my work, for example, in my book, Singing Ideas, about how the song itself is a moment in which everything trembles in the balance, um, you know, where new kind of political ideas can be generated. So rather than a song being something that reflects society, I would theorize song as something that generates really important ideas in society, ideas that have lasting and profound impact in society rather than just reflecting society. And then with these songs, I would argue further then um, that we also see that the song is a place where the self is created. Again, what I would stress is how these songs are alive. Um, they are social processes in the most profound way that you can imagine. Um, and so when I talk about uh, Foucault's work and, you know, technologies or techniques of self, uh, what I'm arguing for is that singing through Irish is creating the self. Singing through Irish is forming a subjectivity. So it's something that's creative, not just in an artistic sense, but it's something that's creative on the level of subject formation and who people are, who people become, or what people are, what they become, depending on how uh, people understand their own um, subjectivities. Uh, and so that's why I refer to uh, uh, to um, Judith Butler as well, who was, of course, a Fugodian scholar. Um, and, you know, Judith Butler, her, her work on um, the performativity of gender is is uh, very well known and uh, is, is, is just so, so fantastic. It's something we will all keep returning to. But her uh, theoretical principles can also be um, understood um, well, you can also apply them to the performance of the self, not just the performativity of gender. And I suppose that's where I was going with this. So when Butler says, for example, that, um, you know, that there, that, you know, you have an identity tenuously constituted in time, an identity instituted through a stylized repetition of acts. What I'm suggesting here is that through this engagement with the Irish language and all of the performative aspects of melody, rhythm, um, the sound of instruments, the, the soundscape, the sound world, the fashion, all of that, when you put it all together, what we have are identities that are tenuously constituted in time, as Butler would say. Um, and I would argue that this is true, not just for the composers or singers, but of course for, for the listeners or the experiences who, the experiencers, sorry, who project themselves into the imaginary space of song. And that this, this is not just something, this is not just entertainment. This is not just something people are listening to for pleasure. This is something that begins to form the self. So if we understand the self as something that's fluid, um, that, that there isn't an essential um, concrete self. Um, what I would argue is that these songs show us how the post-colonial self is tenuously constituted in time and that singing in Irish is a key technique of self. Uh, singing in Irish is actually at the core of what this self means. But as we see, this means quite different things in different contexts. And that's what's fascinating about it to me. 
uh, is how uh, that sheer sense of um, diversity, but also liquidity, uh, seems to to underpin uh, Irish language popular song. Mila Magad, Trina, thank you for taking the time to discuss your work with me. Thanks again to Anya and John also for their contributions to the previous episode, and indeed to all the contributors to Made in Ireland. If you haven't heard the previous episode, I would encourage you to skip back and listen to that as it really locates Trina's discussion here in the context of the wider collection of essays. So, Shine, that is all for this episode. Speak to you all in the next one. Oh,